So here we are, the end of the book of Ruth, and what a fantastic book this is, how much we have gained from it. Now, here's a nice cheery picture for you this morning. Apologies, some of you may have seen this before, but this is my great-great-grandparents. This is William and Elizabeth Parker, the kind of people who you'd love to spend an afternoon with having a joke and a laugh. Um, they, they really look really, really full of the joys of spring, don't they? Now, I never met them. That, that shouldn't come as too much of a surprise because this picture probably dates from the late 1800s or early 1900s. But I do know a little bit about them. Now, I know that actually um, they had to change their surname, or it's rumored they had to change their surname, because they got into debt from gambling. Um, William was also not above a bit of fraud as well. On my great-grandparents' wedding certificate, he has his occupation down as a lawyer. It all sounds very respectable. When, in fact, he worked in a very small corner shop in Heaton Norris in Stockport. But apart from that, I don't know a lot about them. Now, if I did a bit of research, and I know my mum has done a bit of research into our family tree, I could probably find out where they lived, where they got married, where they died. But much beyond that, it's all gone. It's all it lost in history. I don't know what their favourite food was. I don't know where they liked to go. I don't know what, if anything, would make them smile. But the reality of human life is such, isn't it, that actually, bar a few famous people from each generation, most of us, after a couple of generations down the line, our lives get forgotten. All those things that we thought were so important and so crucial in our lives actually don't get remembered. This couple had their own life story. A bit of a bumpy one, but they did have a life story. But it's now not able to be retold. What does this long list of names at the end of Ruth and what does my great-great-grandparents have to teach us about God's plans for us? What can it show us this morning? Well, these verses that we've heard this morning, it begins with the account of the birth of Obed. Ruth and Boaz, if you were with us last week, they have got married um, and they give birth to this child. And this is Obed, who in turn is the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David. Now, when Obed is born, there is this amazing prayer that is prayed over him. And the prayer is this. May he become famous throughout Israel. Prayed over a baby. What, what an odd prayer to pray over a baby. But actually, this is a prophetic prayer. It's a prayer that is on God's heart for this child. It's a prayer that actually will be fulfilled down the generations but what a reminder for us, actually, today, that we should be praying those kind of prayers over our own lives, that we would become all that God wants us to be. And what a prayer to pray over our young people as well. It's great in our church family. We have a number of, of young people in our church, but let's be praying that they become all God wants them to be. Let's be praying that they fulfill all God's purposes and plans he has for them. Now, we see the first fulfillment of that prayer that is prayed over Obed, Ruth and Boaz's son, just two generations down. David, the David that's mentioned in the book of Ruth, King David, the one who would become Israel's greatest king. Now, if you know anything about King David, and we'll be looking at his life, actually, in a few weeks' time, David was a man who was called after God's own heart. 
He wrote the psalm that we, we read at the beginning of our service today. He did some amazing things, but he was also just like me and you. He was a flawed human being who got into problems as well. But the prayer that is praised over Obed, it doesn't just end with David. It keeps moving forward. As the generations go down, we see God's hand is still there. This prayer is still being fulfilled. At the start of Matthew's Gospel, if you have a Bible with you this morning, or if you sat at home and and you've got a Bible there, you may want to turn to Matthew chapter 1. We'll be looking at it in a moment. There is a list of names, an even longer list, and I think Mike will be very pleased I didn't ask him to read all of that out as well in a moment. And it's called a genealogy. It's a list of ancestors. And what we find out is that Ruth and Boaz become part of God's greatest story. The account of Jesus, the Son of God, who would die for us, take our sin, be raised, who ascended into heaven, and who is returning. And they become part of that greatest narrative. You see, David isn't the end of that story. Look at this. This is from one of the prophets from Jeremiah. This is before the time of Jesus. It says, for the time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will be a king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. And that is fulfilled in Jesus. Just look at the screen for a moment. This is from Matthew chapter 1. This is one of the long list of names that we find in the New Testament. Now, you will be glad to know I'm not going to attempt to read that lot out. But it's actually a really fascinating list of names. Because first of all, it goes down the line of David's family. The kings who follow on from David. We get to Solomon, David's son, this one who will be um, the, the wise king of the United Kingdom of Israel. But then after that, the kingdom of Israel splits into Israel and Judah. And as we go down the lines of the kings of Judah, you might just recognize one or two names. But things start to go downhill. The nation starts to be absorbing pagan practices and idolatry. But just to pull out a few of these names on this list, Asa, Asa, a good king in some ways, the writer of One King tells us. He did a lot of things that God liked, but he never really dealt with idolatry in the kingdom of Judah. An even better one, a bit further down, Hezekiah, a man who was described as heart, whose heart fully belonged to God. The writers of Kings describe him in glowing terms. But then we get to this name, Manasseh, a truly wicked and evil man who did incredibly horrendous things, who um, offered pagan sacrifices, which we won't go into this morning. Thoroughly bad. Not everyone in this list has a glowing reference. Not everyone in this list does anything like what God wanted them to do. And the list continues. We won't go through all that lot either, but this goes on beyond the period of exile in that period then between the Old Testament and New Testament. And a lot of these names, we don't know anything about them at all. So what can this list of names from Ruth and from Matthew show us? Well, I think it's this. God will work his purposes out. God will do what he has promised. There is no sin that Israel would commit that would stop Jesus from coming to this earth. There is no sin, no rebellion against God that would see Jesus, God's loved gift to us, not come. No rebellion would prevent God from offering us salvation. 
Now, as human beings, we have the choice. Do we accept the gift of love that God has offered to us in Christ, the offer of salvation, the offer of eternal life, the offer of forgiveness, or do we reject it? Do we choose to walk in God's ways, or do we make our own narratives and walk in those instead? Do we choose to follow Jesus, or do we do something else? And so what we find at the end of the book of Ruth, I believe, is two things. First of all, it's a huge, huge comfort to us. But then it's also an enormous challenge. Well, let's look at the comfort first of all. God's plans for the future. And God has given us his plans in the Bible. We know what's coming. We know what's coming. But God's plans will not be put to one side by human behavior. God will see through what he has promised. Just look at a couple of verses here from two Old Testament passages. Isaiah 25, he will swallow up death forever. You know, what a comfort, what a promise this morning. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. If you know Jesus this morning, are you glad? in your salvation? Do you celebrate? Are you comforted by all that God has done for you? And then we find in Proverbs 19, 21, many of the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. God will do what God has promised. Now, when we look at some of the promises of Scripture, when we look to those verses in Isaiah, when we look into Revelation, and we see that when the kingdom is fulfilled, there will be no more crying, no more tears, no more pain, that we will reign with Jesus forever and ever, we can have confidence in that. We can have real confidence and comfort in those words. But then we look at the brokenness of our world. We look at the disease. We look at the wars and rumors of wars. I don't know about you, but sometimes we can find ourselves saying, where is God in all of this? Where is God in all of this stuff that is happening here and now? Where is God at the moment as those rockets fall in Israel and Palestine? Where is God in India and Nepal, where COVID keeps going unchecked and the death count keeps racking up? Well, the Bible tells us, doesn't it, that God has already joined in with the mess of our world. The God in Christ the final promise, promise that was made over Obed is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus has come. God has walked among us. Today, anyone into what date is in the church calendar? Pe- not Pentecost, that's next week. Anyone? Ascension Day, we got there, Ascension Day. Today is Ascension Day. Many Christians around the world will be remembering today that Jesus ascended into heaven that he had died, that he rose again, he's ascended, and then he's coming back. And then that reminds us that actually he has poured out his spirit. The spirit is poured out at Pentecost, and he has not left us alone. We have the power of the spirit to continue the mission of Jesus. The purposes of the powers of darkness are defeated. The rebellion of sin has all gone through what Christ has done. It may rumble on, but it's a defeated foe. God will keep working through his purposes. But there's a real challenge at the end of the book of Ruth as well. We have a choice. And yes, it's a choice where we first accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But it's an ongoing choice. 
We have a choice to be willingly, passionately, and enthusiastically involved in the purposes of God. Or we have a choice to try and make up our own narratives. We have a choice to live being part of God's biggest picture, or we can do things our own way. Make up our own stories and then become largely forgotten. We can have a choice to become like Ruth and Boaz and be part of God's schemes, or we can be like the kinsman redeemer who we saw last week who doesn't even get his name mentioned. We can choose the greatest narrative of all, God's mission to the world, or we can choose our own story. Now, that all sounds very grand and impressive, doesn't it? All sounds like kind of big picture type stuff. But what does that mean on the day-to-day level? Well, if you just think about Ruth and Boaz's life at the end of the book of Ruth, it actually becomes quite ordinary. They do very normal things. Now, I've heard people say to me, you know, I'm reluctant to give too much of my life to God because he might send me somewhere I don't want to go doing things I don't want to do. And we get, get a bit apprehensive and we think, well, I need to retain control of my life because God will always, that's what God does, you know, the more we give to him, the more he sends us to those kind of places. From my experience, and I think we find this in scripture, yeah, God does call people, absolutely. But when he calls us, he gives us the passion for what we're called to do and the grace to follow that through. You know, Abraham was called by God to leave Ur of the Chaldeans. But he went, but he went in obedience and knowing God was with him. What a comfort that is as well. But just think about Ruth and Boaz. They serve God in the normalness of family life. They serve God having a family. I presume they carried on farming barley, owning land, doing the normal things, and being faithful. And just look what God can do with simple obedience and dedication to him. Just look what God can do when actually we say, we want to be part of your picture, your narrative, not our own narratives. It doesn't necessarily mean that life will change drastically. But what it does mean is that we do everything with a different set of priorities. We do everything seeking what God wants in those situations. It involves a desire to be part of what God is doing, perhaps in our workplaces, if you go to a workplace. With your family, with your friends too. Tomorrow we can actually have people into our houses. With those people that we invite round for coffee, with those people we meet. What is God saying? What is God saying to us in how we behave, in what we say in those situations? Last week, we touched on this a little bit. It's about asking those big questions. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I living the way I'm living? What does God have to say about those things? How can I align what I do with the priorities that Jesus has already given us in his word? Now, I can't answer all those questions for us this morning. I don't know what your life is like. I don't know what your life is made up of. But can I encourage you to think about this challenge? What does it mean in your situation, in your context, to live life as part of God's greatest story that has ever been and ever will be? Obed becomes part of that story. We can be too if our lives are surrendered to him. It doesn't matter how old we are. It doesn't matter what our situation It doesn't matter whether that's in a normal, everyday life or whether God calls us to something that is decidedly un-everyday. That's God's business. Our business is to surrender our lives. So let's, as we come to the end of this most incredible book of Ruth, let's be reminded of the kind of living that Ruth and Boaz did. A life that is dedicated to God. A life that in the everyday seeks to be part of what God is doing.
And let's remember, just in a few moments, we'll come and we'll share bread and wine together. We'll take communion. Let's remember that Jesus has given his all so that we can be part of God's eternity. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you for Ruth and Boaz. We thank you what their life can teach us about how you call us to live ours. And I just pray that whatever the challenges we've picked up through this book of Ruth, that you will just imprint them now onto our hearts. Help us to be those whose life is part of your greatest narrative. And Lord, we thank you that that brings us to the cross. It brings us to the greatest sacrifice. It brings us to the point where you laid your everything down so that we might walk in freedom. We might be free from sin. We might be rescued eternally. And Lord, we pray that your priorities for living might be ours today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.